I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. A listener note. This episode contains violence and content that some listeners might find distressing, including references to child abuse. Previously on Deliver Us from Herbal. Welcome to Colonia Lamer. <laughs> well, yeah, come say hi to Jesse. We were going to Zion to prepare a place for Jesus to return. Herbal thought that if he got rid of Joel, he could just move in and take leadership with Joel's people. Anyone who opposed him deserved to die, including a daughter. Herbal was their leader. They thought they were going to go out and save the world. I don't know what you know about law work, but nobody has all the information. Everybody has a little piece, and that little piece, and that little piece, and that little piece. The only way you're going to get Ervil is to break someone substantial in his group. The jury files back in, and the judge says, Ervil LeBaron, guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, a first-degree felony. I think by the time Ervil had died, I knew it really wasn't over because with such an unstable group founded on such erroneous principles, you never really know what to expect. I'm Gabriella LeBaron, and my father is Ervil LeBaron. This is the Book of the New Covenant. It's a manifesto of Ervil LeBaron. Cult wasn't even a word we knew of. There was no cult. We were the KOG, if anything. KOG. Yeah, we called ourselves the KOG. We were God's kingdom. I mean, murder was sort of a, of a natural thing with these folks. Heber, he gave the authority to the next brother in line, Mo, also called Aaron. We would do those kind of heavy loaded prayers in support of the four o'clock murders happening in the States. It was just surreal. It was like, no, you, you, how can this happen? It was so shocking. Who did it and why? This is God's law. We have to do it. Otherwise, the whole world will go to hell, like Armageddon. The investigation's going nowhere. We don't have any evidence. Everybody's lying to us. There's a hard core of these kids that were raised in this environment and are practice killers. All the adults were in jail now, and we need to carry on, continuing the murder spree. I understand what it's like to live in a terrorist organization. I understand how mothers who strap bombs to their children feel. In 1992, the trail's kind of cold for the murders in Texas. And all of a sudden, Dick Forbes gets this phone call. And they're willing to tell us everything and they want some protection. This interview is just stone cold chilling. Richard was straightforward as a witness. I mean, he'd tell you anything. Jenny was only killed because she was old enough to be a witness. How did he feel about killing an eight-year-old? What did he tell you? That he had to do it. He was ordered to. 
We actually had physical evidence that we could use. We had a story that stuck together. We had people that were in the family willing to testify. The first trial of the four o'clock murders began on January 11th, 1993. William Heber LeBaron, Patricia LeBaron, and Douglas Lee Barlow shuffled into the United States District Court in Houston, Texas. Less than a year after Cynthia LeBaron had made that fateful phone call to Detective Dick Forbes to tell him she was ready to turn on the kingdom of God. As the trial began, you might expect the cops and prosecutors to have felt some sense of trepidation. After all, this cult had a history of getting away with killing people. Who knows how this trial might play out? But to be honest, that would be injecting false drama into the proceedings. Because Heber and the two other KOG members on trial weren't going to dispute their involvement in the killings which kind of gave Heber's defense lawyer, Tom Berg, an impossible task. I was a public defender. We lose most of our cases. But you do the best you can. You try to get creative. You try to come up with a theory that is credible, that allows you to stand up in front of a jury with a straight face and tell a story. That's the story that your client wants presented because you're telling his story, not yours. And then the jury decides... I was willing to fight the case to try and win it, even if the odds were against us. Heber and the others had given very specific instructions to their legal team. They wanted the trial. They wanted the form. They wanted the chance to have their side of the story told. And I think he'd realized that he was in jail and he would always be in jail. What was the justification that he shared with you for the killings? They believed that they were entitled to this revenge. And, of course, throughout, you've got this issue of blood atonement, which for them was the core of their worldview and religious belief. These are people, not only had they personally offended them, but they had offended the religion. And the only way their souls could be saved was through the shedding of blood. So, yeah, like I said, not an easy argument for a public defender to put in front of a Texas jury But Heber and the others felt God was on their side. He fully believed that he was right in what he did. And it's twisted logic for us, but this is how they were raised from small. And so it made sense to them, and it was internally consistent for them to believe this way and to justify everything they did along those lines. Was there any remorse for any of the crimes he committed? No that the little girl had come with her father that day was for them not a tragic circumstance, but just a circumstance. I couldn't find a commonality that I try to find with clients where there's some kind of connection that I can use. They truly did believe in this really warped worldview that this was mandated by God. How unusual is that for you to not be able to find any sort of commonality or affection for a client? That's rare. That's rare, because I can usually, at this stage in my career, find something in everybody. And, And why do you think with them you couldn't? Because they were so locked into that worldview. It's not like something you could reason with. Perhaps the most dramatic moment in the trial came when Cynthia, the defendant's sister, took the stand. It was a closed court the day she came in, so no one from the audience could intimidate her. By this point, Cynthia was living in a witness protection program for her safety. She broke down in tears as she testified against her brother and sister. And then, on January 20th, 1993, Tom made his closing statement, and he urged the jury to remember that the accused killers truly believed that they were carrying out vengeance 
in the name of God. It was a very hard argument, and the jury saw right through it. <laughs> you know, they weren't out for days and days. Uh, but it was the only argument that we had. After a hunt lasting so many years, the jury returned after just a few hours. They found Heber, Patricia, and Doug guilty of nine federal charges. No one was surprised with the verdict, and uh, none of them showed any particular emotion. I think we all knew what was coming. The jury had no doubts they were responsible for the killings. There was a strong impulse amongst them to convict because of how horrible the facts were. And then the judge imposed a sentence. And in this case, we already knew what the sentence was going to be based on everything that had gone before. It was life. Life without parole. At a separate hearing in the fall of 94, Richard LeBaron was also sentenced for his role in the four o'clock killings. In return for his confession, prosecutors asked the judge for leniency, and the judge gave it. Richard received five years in prison. That left just two members from the KOG leadership at large, Aaron and Tarsa LeBaron, two of the cult's most devout members. From the teams at Novel and iHeartRadio, this is the final episode of Deliver Us from Herbal. Episode 13, Chasing Ghosts. The crossing between the Mexican border and Laredo, Texas, has a special place in the history of the cult of Herbal LeBaron. It's where Ervil's former wife and cult assassin Rena Chinoth entered U.S. police custody in 1977. And two years later, it's where Ervil crossed to his final destination, prison and death. Decades later, in 1992, Detective Dick Forbes and federal prosecutor and Jenny Task Force veteran David Schwendeman had arranged with border guards at Laredo to allow Cynthia LeBaron and her sister Jessica into the U.S. to help them bring down the kingdom of God. And now, in 1995, it's where Aaron LeBaron, leader of the KOG, the final one mighty and strong, crossed in handcuffs. Getting Aaron this far had not been easy. The Jenny Task Force faced two major obstacles. First, they had to find Aaron. Then they had to get him into America. The first part, surprisingly, wasn't that hard. Mexican cops located Aaron pretty quickly after the conviction of his siblings. But, you know, they weren't about ready to give him up to us until they got some concessions. David Schwendeman learned that the Mexican cops had swooped up Aaron LeBaron in 1995. But... The local authorities wanted an exchange. Aaron for some of their citizens currently being held in the U.S. awaiting execution in Texas. Seems fair enough to me. But Texas being, well, Texas, the authorities weren't going to permit that. So there was a standoff. One that eventually went all the way to the top. U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno. And Ms. Reno then begins to negotiate on our behalf with the Mexican authorities to get Aaron transferred to Texas for prosecution in Texas. No one ever gave up anybody on death row in Texas to get Aaron back. But the federal government had to give assurances to Mexico that Aaron would not be executed for his crimes. Ms. Reno convinced them to send him up to the bridge and walk him across. Aaron crossed that bridge in Laredo and was taken to jail. A family ritual now as familiar to the LeBarons as the placing of hands on heads to make someone the next mighty and strong. As all this was happening with Aaron, his sister Gabriella LeBaron was now no longer a child or a teenager even. 
She turned 20 in 1996 and was still living in Mexico. The teenagers she'd once idolized were now adults too and locked up. Her other siblings wanted nothing to do with their father's religion, but still, she was keeping the faith. Somehow her siblings would find their way back. And we would go back to normal and go back to establishing the cult, Koji. Normal. For Gabriela, this wasn't teaching English in Monterey, Mexico, wearing high heels. Normal wasn't dating people raised outside the cult. Normal was military training and gun running, packing trucks with marijuana, and stealing cars to finance missions to kill God's enemies. By the summer of 1997, news reached her of Aaron's impending trial. It took place on June 12th, in the same Houston courtroom where their siblings had been convicted years before. I was like, he's in jail, but he's not going to be convicted because God is going to save him, get him out. Gabriella was convinced Aaron would somehow be cleared and he'd return with her to Mexico. But... He got convicted. I was like, oh, oh God. Aaron got 45 years for his part in planning the four o'clock killings. Gabriela traveled to Phoenix to visit Aaron in prison. He wasn't just an older half-brother. To her, he was still God's prophet on earth, the person who knew their father's opus, the book of the new covenant, like no other, the one mighty and strong. Gabriela needed Aaron to reassure her about God's plan and what was next for the kingdom of God. And then when I went to visit him, he was like, I've, I've been an atheist for a long time. The one mighty and strong was an atheist. That's when I really lost my North Star. Everything fell out of orbit for me. You know, it really, like, that was very collapsing. So I lost my leader. I didn't know what to do. It's like, I'm ready to go back and build a cult, build a KOG, but where do I go? I'm alone. Where do I go? Where do I talk to? What do I do? So I prayed and I asked God to show me what to do. We never got answers, okay? So this is the problem with us. Gabriella had a familiar feeling, like the one she had staring into those flames in Monterey as her possessions burned in front of her, in that gesture to a God who was silent. And yet, even now, in 1997, Gabriella still believed God was watching over her, that all the killing had been for a reason, to build God's kingdom on earth. She hadn't lost faith. I remember just having this really strong conclusion in my head. I was like, look, God, if you want me to go and build the cult, build the koji, it wasn't the cult, it was the koji. I'm going to do it. I'm ready. I was so ready. Just tell me and I'll go. But meanwhile, I'm here. I don't know what to do. You're not telling me what to do. So I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And if I do anything wrong, you'll have to forgive me. And I know that you always forgive. The minute you're ready for me to go back, just tell me what I need to do, where I need to do, etc. But until then, like starting now, I'm breaking free. I'm doing whatever I want. Settled. Okay. I was off the hook. And yet there was a reason Gabriella kept hope that maybe the KOG was still alive. There was still one highly influential member of the cult out there in the world. Tarsa. Jackie Tarsa LeBaron is the second oldest child of Irva LeBaron and Lorna Chinoth. Lorna, you might remember, came from that backbone family of Irva's empire the Chinoths. Daughter to Thelma, sister to Victor, Mark, Dwayne, Rena, and Glenn, who I talked to in episode three. The KOG had murdered Lorna when she tried to leave the cult back in 82. Gabriella told me at the time of that killing, most of the children in La Jolla went and camped at the beach for a few days to be away from the horror show they knew was about to unfold. 
10 years later, when most of the KOG was rounded up in Arizona after the four o'clock murders, Tarsa disappeared. She was wanted for conspiracy to commit murder, witness tampering, and two racketeering charges. But by the 2000s, she was still a fugitive, on the run from the law. With Tarsa at large, detectives like Dick Forbes and prosecutors like David Schwendeman couldn't be sure the bloody legacy of Ervil LeBaron was really over. What if, somehow, the KOG was still alive, carrying out the killings of the Book of the New Covenant? Law enforcement believed Tarsa was actually the cult's mastermind. Tarsa, or Jacqueline, was the one that was uh, pushing all the buttons. That's Houston homicide detective John Burmeister. And Utah prosecutor David Schwendeman had a similar view. Tarsa, who is the matriarch, essentially the one that is the protector and preserver of the Book of the New Covenant, drilling into these kids that these things have to be done, And so they carry out this mission. Gabriella also attested to Tarsa's devotion to the Book of the New Covenants and the theology of the cult. But she said that just because Tarsa was devout didn't mean she ran the KOG as prosecutors and police believed. Jackie was a hardcore extremist. She was definitely a person that kept everything to the T. Um... Whether she could initiate and say, we have to start doing this as coming strictly from her, I believe that's a little far-fetched because she's not that kind of personality. And she got whipped so hard so many times. She was just strictly slave labor. And you had to submit. And she submitted willingly because she believed that she had to obey the authority. It's perspectives like this on KOG members from Gabriella that have changed how I've seen this whole saga. Rather than seeing the cult members as these powerful assassins with near superhuman powers of evasion, a picture emerges from Gabriella of the scared children they'd once been, reacting to the routine killing all around them, carried out by their own family making decisions by committee, with no single person steering the ship. Not Heber, not Aaron, and certainly not Tarsa. When I ran this perspective by law enforcement, well, it's not that they flat out disagreed. In fact, many concurred that the kids who grew up in the cult had been products of their environment and a warped theology. But they also pointed out to me that the KOG are well-documented liars and manipulators. And they asked me, how do you know that what you're being told is true? It's hard to say. If you look at the cult collectively, I can see it, yeah. But to be fair, you could easily say the same about cops collectively too. And anyway, when it comes to which version of Tarsa is most accurate, someone pushing all the buttons, or a reluctant and passive cult member, maybe the answer lies with the next group of law enforcement officials to encounter Jackie Tarsa LeBaron. My name is Ted Imperato. I'm an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of Texas, located in Houston. My name is Rick Haynes. I'm an assistant United States attorney I've been a federal prosecutor for 19 years, and, oh, you wanted to know how old I am. I'm 62. Rick and Ted are prosecutors. Kind of a double act. We've known each other since 93, and then we came up together in the state DA's office. So We always tried cases together. They were introduced to Tarsa in 2010 when an unusual case was thrown their way. The criminal chief came to us and said, hey, um, we've tried to get some other prosecutors to work this case, but nobody wants to work it. Um, I think there was concern with the case uh, because of its history. This history goes way back, and I think the prosecutors, the two that turned it down, were familiar with the case and were a little bit concerned for their safety. 
The case all centered on a fugitive who had suddenly been found. After 20 years on the run, the fugitive daughter of a polygamous sect leader is in custody tonight. Jacqueline Tarsa LeBaron faces charges in a 1988 quadruple killing one of the victims, an eight-year-old girl. It is Rick and Ted took the case, and they learned more about Tarsa. Tarsa LeBaron. It was, her name's Jackie, but everyone referred to her as Tarsa. For over a decade, she'd lived in hiding in Honduras. But then, in 2010... She had lived in Honduras long enough that she could apply for public assistance, welfare, if you will. And it was during the point that she was registering for that that they did a records check and found she had this warrant out. The last fugitive of the KOG had been found. She was then extradited and now was going to face those charges relating to the four o'clock murders that had sent her siblings to prison. She was described to us by various members of the family when we interviewed them as being kind of a driving force in terms of keeping alive her father's point of view and the contents of the Book of the New Covenant. But then they got to meet Tarsa in person. And the reality of this quote-unquote driving force that confronted them? She looked like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. She was scared of her own shadow. She was not the Jacqueline Tarsa LeBaron that we deal with when we talk about what happened in 1988 and in the years prior. So that's the person that we met. That's not the person that we learned about and read about as we investigated the case. And Rick and Ted were in for a few more surprises. It was just so unusual. It was unusual when it happened and it didn't stop being unusual on the day that she was sentenced. That's coming up after the break. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On June 6, 2011, Jackie LeBaron reached a plea agreement with prosecutors. Her sentencing hearing began in September 2011. As prosecutors Rick and Ted entered a courtroom packed with press and members of the public, there was one person seated there they were surprised to see, Cynthia LeBaron. Cynthia, you'll remember, had grown up in the kingdom of God, but had turned on her brothers and sisters in 92 because she feared they were going to kill her. Cynthia has testified against family members. Heber's serving a life sentence because of her multiple life sentences. So is Patricia. Cynthia had broken down in tears at Heber, Patricia, and Doug Barlow's trial as she gave damning evidence against them. And in 93, she had entered a witness protection program. Now she was in court again, seeing another sibling cult member sentenced on the back of her evidence. Yet Cynthia is still, uh, I believe, a love part of the family. Um, They're very close-knit. They support each other. They're extremely loyal to each other. Cynthia had switched sides again and was now sitting back amongst the LeBaron clan. I think, oddly enough, this whole investigation into Jacqueline Tarsa kind of brought them back together and they kind of got to convince each other that they weren't going to kill each other. The family were back together, the ones that weren't in prison anyway, surviving children and former wives of Irva LeBaron. But they weren't there as cult members. They were there to support Tarsa before her sentence was handed down. This group included Rena Chinoth, who at this point had taken in some of the orphan kids from the KOG to help them build a life outside the cult. It was September 8, 2011, when the judge handed down his sentence, and Rick and Ted were in for their final surprise. Tarsa was sentenced to three years in prison. What was the atmosphere like during the sentencing? What do you remember about that moment? I was pissed off. So, yeah, Rick, Rick spoke to the judge during the sentencing. Rick made our recommendation. The judge disagreed with our recommendation. And then Rick and he got, had a debate about that. Rick thought she should have been given more time. And he told the judge that straight up. But as both he and Ted pointed out to me, in hindsight, there wasn't much more the judge could have done. The benchmark in sentencing had been set by the punishment handed down to Richard LeBaron back in October 93. Richard, who had killed an eight-year-old child and by this point in 2011, had been out of prison for years. The judge actually went very low. He gave him five years, five years in prison for killing a little girl and her father. And that, that gives me heartburn to this day. Jackie walked free from jail on December 14th, 2012, released early for good behavior. In the eyes of the law, former KOG members like Jackie and Richard LeBaron are no longer a threat to society, no longer following that path set out by their father, Herbal LeBaron. cemetery in Houston. It's a very large, beautiful 
cemetery with tall oak trees, pine trees, and uh, the headstones are really large and some of them are quite ornate. And we are currently near the grave of Ervil LeBaron. We're trying to find it. If you visit the grave of Ervil LeBaron today, there is no shrine, no flowers. Even with a map of the cemetery, it took me and my producer David a long time to find it. But eventually... Oh, wow. There it is. Beloved father, Ervil M. LeBaron. February 22nd, 1925. August 15th, 1981. On the day we visited, it was covered with leaves and branches. It's a simple headstone set into the grass. Uh, It doesn't look like anyone has been here in a while. All around his grave, there are these other graves that are clearly well tended to. There's one about 10 feet away with like a hedge around it and fresh flowers. And then there is Ervil LeBaron who in life thought he was the most important man alive and yet no one cares. His grave is entirely ignored. Coming here, I don't know what I expected. But it wasn't this. Maybe it was all the time I had spent pursuing this story and hearing about the devastation Herbal caused. It felt so alive to me. But here was the grave of a man who seemed like he had been forgotten. No pilgrims burning candles. No one to even sweep aside the leaves and branches covering his name. Kind of anticlimactic. But I also thought, sort of appropriate. Better that there's not a shrine to him or a religion that lives on. But then I discovered a place where Ervil's memory is being kept alive. Online. Facebook, more precisely. A shrine of sorts under a page headed, quote, a memorial page in honor of Ervil M. LeBaron, a man whose name was smeared by narcissists. To be clear, it's not like this is a huge online fan club. This page only has seven accounts listed as friends. The last active post was October 2021, but it's still a little unsettling to scroll through. To see the posts, the general theme being Ervil was a scapegoat. Others were really to blame. There are some spooky-looking photos of him in his prime. They've been doctored in a way that almost makes him look like Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe. But it's not really the content that is the most shocking, or the reason why I even mention it. It's the fact that I recognize some of the names of the seven followers. Accounts that seem to belong to Linda Johnson, a former wife, the one-time KOG matriarch and expert forger, and some of Ervil's kids from the KOG, including Patricia, who murdered her baby and sat in the car waiting while Richard LeBaron murdered Dwayne Chinoth and his daughter Jenny, and Cynthia LeBaron, the daughter of Ervil who turned on everyone with her testimony and essentially brought the KOG down. And it's the account under Cynthia's name that is the most active on the page. As I scroll through the posts, I can't help but wonder, is this story really over? And I'm not the only one asking this question. If there was one person I wanted to interview more than any other making this podcast, it was Dick Forbes the detective most responsible for bringing the cult down. But it seemed like I'd missed my chance. In episode four, when journalist Del Van Atta told me about first looking into the cult with Dick back in the 1970s, he told me as much. There was one great detective named Dick Forbes, who has died, 
Um, he passed away. I'm pretty sure he died. Dale isn't often wrong, but he was in this instance. Turns out, Dick is alive. I tracked down various addresses, but it seemed Dick moved regularly. And those I interviewed who were still in touch with him weren't about to give me his address. Because he does not think the cult of Ervil LeBaron are done blood-atoning their enemies. He told me as much on the phone in a conversation that was mostly off the record. And he's not the only one. David Schwendeman now lives about a half-hour drive from Salt Lake City, where he worked as a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And he's still haunted by the cult, too. Literally. It does affect you. Makes you wake up in the night kind of screaming sometimes. Even though it's been decades, and he's gone to work on cases involving war crimes. And David believes he's actually dodged a few bullets himself, even since the cult were put behind bars. A few years after we put them in prison, the family members that were in federal prison were using code in magazines to recruit a bike gang or members of a bicycle gang to kill me and prosecutors in the federal cases in Texas. David tells me that prison staff were able to uncover these messages before an attempt on his life could be made. But that wasn't the only incident. There was another one that, well, it seemed like a kind of signature KOG lure, a trap, the MO for the cult. At one point, my wife was called and told that there was some money at a bank in Park City that someone had left for our kids, our two boys. The teller said whoever had left the money said Dave's wife would need it. It almost sounded like a threat. Dave's wife, Bobby, called him. And it was kind of odd. Bobby called me and said, this is really strange, what's going on? So I called the marshals and said, look, this looks very much like one of the lures that the family uses. We've had this other situation occur where we know that they were threatening to kill us. And there was an odd car that followed my son home once from school, following him right up to the house. So we got a hold of the marshals, and the marshals immediately got the kids out of school. They did a full investigation, never were able to figure out who had left the money. They actually left money? Yes. How much? Uh, About $200, I think. To this day, David thinks it was a trap. So I asked Gabriella about all this, about whether the members of the KOG ruling committee that she grew up with were still a potential threat. And she told me what those former members of the KOG were doing today. Doug is extreme Buddhist, and Heber is extreme Christian, born and grown Christian, and Trish is into social justice, and Moe's an atheist, and you know, and um, the cult is just something crazy that happened to all of us. So, like, they're not dangerous. They might be a little bit whatever crazy in their ideas, but not dangerous. Like the cult is like some crazy. We all are on the same page about that. Let me just repeat that in case you missed it. Doug Barlow, the stepson of Ervil and KOG assassin, he's in jail for life. He's a Buddhist. Heber, perhaps the most cold-blooded killer of the entire cult, is a born-again Christian. He's written a long and detailed apology for his crimes. Patricia, who once did Jane Fonda workouts in the Mexican desert, and accompanied Richard LeBaron to Jenny and Dwayne's murder, is a social justice warrior. And the former One Mighty and Strong, Aaron, who Gabriella calls Mo, he's still in prison. And he's still an atheist. Gabriella stays in touch with them. I ask her about Heber. Heber doesn't have any bitterness to anybody right now. He just completely let it all go, 100%. Yeah, he's born-again Christian, and all he does is spend six hours a day in his cell praying for everybody in the world and the whole family and forgiving anybody that's ever done any wrong to him. And every time he calls and I talk to him, he always just talks about 
how he's praying and how he's okay and how he's fine. And it's like, gel is perfectly fine. <laughs> he doesn't care. <laughs> you know, as long as I have a place to sit quiet, I'm good. So his turnaround is pretty impressive. Tarsa, Richard, and Cynthia, they're out of prison. Some live in the Austin area, not too far from Gabriella. I asked Gabriella to reach out to them to see if they might want to speak to me, but they declined. But then she tells me something remarkable about the family. So I never cut them out of my life. I just quit sharing with them. But we would still show up to parties and stuff. And they would ask me how I'm doing, but I didn't share my deep, dark struggles or anything with them. But now, how we are now is that we all care about each other and everyone's come to their own conclusions about reality and life, you know. And some people think the other people are crazy, but we all love each other and we have fun times during holidays. Normally we play games and drink alcohol and sometimes there are times that we could all set up a bunch of different card tables and everyone's playing spades and drinking tons of alcohol into the wee hours of the morning. In other words, they appear to be a regular family like millions of others. But when it comes to whether this cult is still a threat, that picture of the KOG members today kind of only answers half my question. Because the individuals who are responsible for carrying out Ervil's doctrine as the kingdom of God might be done with it. But what's to stop future generations from picking up the murderous ideology of Ervil LeBaron? And perhaps that's where the real danger lies. That's coming up after the break. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As a journalist, I've been to some dangerous places in my career. But I would never knowingly put myself in danger. 
I'm not the sort of journalist who enters war zones in a flak jacket and helmet. And yet, at times reporting the story, especially near the end, I've wondered if there is danger in even telling it. If the cult of Ervil LeBaron could be revived by a new generation of fanatics who might seek out retribution against people who show their prophet Ervil in an unfavorable light. Another generation. The cult reborn. It's a dark thought. In a story already full of darkness. A story where, to be honest, sometimes the darkness has been unrelenting. But this story has light on the horizon too. If you look towards it. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this is a story of resistance. And making it, I've met members of the mainstream Mormon faith and fundamentalist Mormons who took great personal risk to take down the Ervil LeBaron cult and to rescue the children still in it. And then there is Gabriella. Of all the people I interviewed making this podcast, the person I met who affected me more than any other. Her resistance to the darkness of her beginnings, into her journey from the last woman standing in the Keoji to the woman I met recently. The story of Gabriella's path after the Koji could be, should be, a 13-part podcast in and of itself. There was a period while living in Austin that she went to college, parties, worked at a strip club and became a dancer, pursued a career in music. There was a period where in the early 2000s, inspired by Che Guevara, she hitchhiked her way down to southern Mexico and joined the Zapatistas. And then, with the passing of time, Gabriela had the strength to turn and face her trauma. Nothing is ever going to work out for you unless you get to the bottom of your own personal pain. And all this trauma you experienced, everything that you experienced, all that is going to get in the way of you. If you don't heal it, you have to go heal all of that. And then you can get back to work. Her recovery, she tells me, has been slow. At first, it was moment to moment, filled with grief and rage. Burning rage. But I had the tools, so I would channel all this rage in my meditations. And I would write about it. I would write my rage out. And I would visualize fire, a ball of fire. And my rage was, became a ball of fire, and all of my rage was going to be absorbed in that fire. Was there a moment in time where you could feel that shift? Like a particular moment where you felt happiness for the first time, or safety, or peace? Yes. I was about 27 years old. I had my own little house, duplex, this rickety thing in East Austin when it was still the artist zone before the big hype happened. I was painting a lot. And I remember experiencing safety and peace and be like, I've never had this feeling ever before in my life. And I, I felt like there was... One crack of light that came through a very dark sky. That I had only known the dark sky my whole life. So I had have moments of being exhilarated by music or by something. But just without all of exhilaration, put all that aside. Just as things are right now. You have coffee. You're on your porch. You're in this beautiful, safe zone. Everything is okay for this moment. For no reason whatsoever. It's just okay. And I actually remember that moment, and I painted a painting on that moment. And I called that painting Daylight at Last. Today, Gabriella is a graduate of Cornell University, the Ivy League school in Ithaca, New York. She works for the state of Texas in the Attorney General's office. And maybe it's her career in the justice system that has played a role in her agreeing to talk to me. Because now that she feels able to share her story, she hopes it will open up some important conversations for others on how to heal wounds in fractured communities. 
where hatred and violence had done seemingly irreparable damage. If we decide we want to move forward, to walk away from the darkness and into the light. I feel like personally for myself, and I can speak for some of my siblings as well, we have survived something horrific in which we were both the victim and the criminal. Now I feel like I have a lot to say to the world about how to care for people who are coming out of extremely traumatic situations, how to care for the children of, let's say, terrorist groups, or what if you have the family of a terrorist group, an environment in a whole world system where there's little to nothing in terms of support or understanding on how to help you get out of that. Instead, there are lots of labels and judgment and discrimination. And suddenly, it's like having come through this and having fought so hard, that's the kind of conversation we need to have. It's like, we need to talk about our story out loud so people know what happens to people when you don't know any other reality except whatever you grew up in. If we don't understand how to care for the human being, starting from the children, no matter where they come from, no matter what their background, and no matter what they've done, Today in Colonial LeBaron, the Mexican desert town where this podcast first started, Irville LeBaron is mostly a forgotten man. No one says his name. His brother Joel's dream, however, lives on. Colonial LeBaron has become the type of place he imagined, and then some. If you stand on the hill that overlooks the town, the desert floor is covered with vast orchards of pecan trees. The town has become wealthy. They're even building a new exclusive gated community in the hills with a planned golf course. His brother Joel's presence is everywhere. Inside every home I entered, I saw a large portrait of him. His followers now number in the thousands. They don't call themselves Mormons or even members of the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times, the church he started with his brother Erbil. They call themselves... Joel's people. This chill fundamentalist vision of a church built around liberty rather than force has not only survived, it's flourished. It might not yet be utopia, but Colonial LeBaron is a town made up of Catholics and polygamists and mainstream Mormons and atheists. What they're united around is their history. Religion has in many ways faded to the background. Gabriella hasn't yet visited Colonial LeBaron, and she's not yet sure if she ever will. People from my side of the family have gone down to Colonial LeBaron, and they've had a great time. They stayed up talking all night long, telling stories. They were embraced. They call us Ervilites. Actually, I just recently began talking to one cousin, who's from Colonial Baron, who's a descendant of Joel. And um, we're just like, hey, you know? And I was like, I'm sorry, what happened to your grandpa? Best I can do. And he's like, yeah, that's over, you know? It's not your fault. Yep, it is, you know, it's not my fault. The last time I visited Colonial Baron, I met up with Naoma Stubbs. She's the person who told me that story in episode two about gathering up her younger siblings at night and hiding in ditches when she feared Ervil's people were coming to attack the town. Anyway, I asked about the dynamic between Joel and the people now called Ervilites, like Gabriella and her siblings. A lot of Ervil's kids have came to LeBaron, and I think they're coming to seek comfort. I had a very hard time at the beginning to think that how could they in other words, your father murdered our prophet. How could you have the gall almost to come and want to be a part of our people? It's like I almost felt that it was wrong. But I've learned over the years that as children, they're not at fault. It's not their fault that their parents murdered other members of your family. So I've learned to have compassion and forgiveness and help them to integrate so that they don't carry more pain forward. 
because they're just as much victims as we are. And they, at this point, they're fully integrated into the community? Yeah, they're fully integrated. And are most people the way you are about it, like forgiving or? Um, I think the majority, I would say 90%. I think this, a lot of the older generations that have more memory than I do as a child, that they were almost adults, then I think they have a harder time with it by far. I asked Naoma's mom, Larive Stubbs, about this too. I wanted to know how someone who was here from the beginning feels. Someone who knew Joel and Ervil intimately. Saw how Zion began. Saw how for a time it fell apart with the two warring brothers. I asked Larive if she has forgiven Ervil and his followers for what they did. I think that it's nice to forgive people, but certain things, it's a little bit hard to forgive. But the other side of it is it's none of your business because they actually have as much right to live here as we do. And they're married among this people. And mind your business. And I do. And I'm probably one of the ones that has the hardest time keeping my mouth shut and not talking about it. There's nothing to talk about but what good's going on. We definitely have prospered. Our people aren't poor anymore. And they all love each other. And all the kids, they work out there, they come home, and their whole life is to be with all their friends. And everybody's, somebody's a friend to them. Because let me tell you something, our people, our kids, they feel free here. And we do believe in forgiveness and faith and how you forgive, you'll be forgiven. That night at Colonial LeBaron's annual friendship fair, there was a large dance, a carnival. I saw people laughing, hugging, and I felt this energy, this happiness, this peace. You know that feeling when you feel like you're home. Deliver Us from Herbal is hosted by me, Jesse Hyde, and written and reported by me, Leona Hamid, and David Waters. Production from Leona Hamid and David Waters. Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Lena Chang and Megan Oyinka are researchers. Mariana Gangora is our field producer. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Sona Avakian. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Michael Lee Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Our music is composed by Julian Lynch. Special thanks to Scott Anderson, Scott Carrier, Del Van Atta, Pippa Smith, Saskia Edwards, Matt O'Mara, Katrina Norvell, and Beth Ann Macaluso, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Shankman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues 
pop culture and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.